This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Welcome to the Friday morning break with John Gibbs on the 1st of March. Spring is on the way, and this week, as I explore what schools are for, my guest is Professor Esther Leslie from Birkbeck College, and we reflect on some of the theorists of the past, using the ideas of Walter Benjamin and Theodore Adorno to ask ourselves questions about schools today, what they're for, and how they can respond to the times we're living in. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TTRadio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. And as the music disappears, we're back with my guest, Professor Esther Leslie from Birkbeck College. And thank you so much for joining me today. A pleasure. <laughs> well, I know that I'm particularly interested in this discussion in a way because I think the things you've written, some of which I outlined in the introduction, and some of the things that I want to explore after a career in teaching is, is very sort of fundamental to what schools are for, as opposed to things I have explored, which are also quite important, things like exams and should we examine schools, what kind of exams should there be and so on. I think schools get too close to the trees without looking down on the forest in a way and wondering what, it, what it's all what we're doing. So I, know, I also know that you you have children at school or you've had children passing through school. Yeah, I've got one who's currently in GCSE year and one who's just started at university. Both of my girls are through school and, and now through university. And uh, those particular years, as you've experienced with one, the, the GCSE through to the A-levels and so on is, well... Is a particular period. <laughs> yeah, it's something like a living hell, I think, <laughs> for the whole band, for us and for everyone. So I'm sure your experiences will colour our view of what schools are for. One of the things I read, which uh, you're prompting, really, I know some of the ideas of Theodore Adorno and the Frank- Frankfurt School and so on, but I hadn't come across this essay, so I thought I'll read that. So I read Education After Auschwitz. That's interesting because... In a way, that's it's history, isn't it? So that he's writing that some time ago, after the end of the Second World War, and how is it relevant today? But it struck me as I more and more I read it, I thought it was extremely relevant because of the times we're living through. So, how do we prepare students for uh, a world in which all of the echoes of violence and violent behaviours that Adorno would have been interested in seem to be still around? How do we do that on the basis of what? Adorno's thinking about, I guess, is one question. I mean, in in 1966, he writes that essay, Education After Auschwitz, and delivers it as a a radio lecture. So he's speaking that into a public space and level at this this man, Adorno, who's by now in, in his 60s, stands as a sort of critical moral guardian of where the nation should go you know he's forcing them to try to reflect back on how is it possible for germany the cultured nation to become the most barbaric to date with the holocaust and that there's a a violent capacity within any human subject that's you know generated from i mean it exists within children and it's generated from that point in which humans became rational or reasoning beings. So it goes back a long, long way. And reason was very important, he argues, because it enabled us to to make a place in the world and, and to get agriculture working so we could feed ourselves and we have homes and then we develop all these technologies. And, and that's very important. That's part of what it means to be human. But at a certain point, and in particular, when that becomes enmeshed with competitive capitalist and class society, that capacity for reason becomes a human and 
and bonds itself together with violence and domination in order to to get whatever ends uh, proposed to to be of advantage to the individual or the collective or the group at that point. So he sees ism as, as a moment in which that really breaks out and becomes state power. So rather than Nazism being a, a kind of irrationalism, it, it's almost like a super rationalism of organizing the society where your train lines run straight into the death camps and so on. And 1966, yes, 21 years after the end of the Second World War, and he sees incipient and continuing fascist movements, violent behaviours, violence and domination, both at small scale and at state scale. And so he's asking the question, how how could this not be possible? And education lies at the heart of it for him. But from very young childhood, um, and he has all sorts of Freudian ideas about, you know, a, a sort of primary violence within the child that can either be sort of e educated away or rationalized or, or brought into meaningful contexts and, and not have to become uh, just a, a lashing out. Um, but that, you know, that's not what the education system sets itself up to be. It doesn't, what he really wants is for uh, a self-conscious individual who also understands the, the social world and why things are the way that they are, someone who's a, able to reason and understand their place in the world and why they do what they do and, and not to feel threatened by others and therefore lashing out or setting competition with others and therefore wanting to dominate or be dominated and so on. I think that's it, a part of it. it when, when, when you describe that, and Adorno's... Assertion. I think there are, there's probably hardly a teacher listening who wouldn't think worse. That's outlining the kind of humane but tolerant views that we want students to have, to critical thinking, to evaluate the world from from a rational but a humane rational perspective. But all sorts of other things go on in schools that mitigate against that, it strikes me. I'm not sure one of the things that troubles me, I don't know whether this has been your experience, as a parent, that schools are particularly kind places, that, that, that other things happen in schools. I'm thinking of the, the competitive nature of schools, the lumping together of students into, into groups of ages where they move through together in a quite regimented sort of way. And so the, so the regimentation of education and its control, its discipline, and the, the sense we, we have to make you ready to be compliant citizens mitigates against being critical and and well, and, and sort of antagonistic citizens. You know, you you want them to be able to question the world, but so much of what they do is about conforming to the world. Yeah, I I think that that's so true. So in a sense, these things that happen within schools are projections of the outside in. I mean, it's it's something I love, and this is a much more historical reference, but. One of my big passions is Walter Benjamin, who writes a lot about pedagogy and education in, in various ways, but partly based on his own experience in, you know, late 1890s, early 1900s, Berlin, the grammar school system. And he writes about this in his memoirs, where he talks about how they were being brought up as children to be soldiers, you know, to all all of the values of imperial germany are projected into the classroom they're even dressed in little soldier suits and and photographed in that way and so you know th there's a sense in which the classroom cannot be immune from the broader inequities and class society and competitive society that exists but and it, as much as teachers might want it to be but also, they are enmeshed in their own system of, of sifting and dividing and streaming and levelling and setting students against each other. And I suppose that's one of the great difficulties. But in Adorno's Education After Auschwitz essay, there's a part that is maybe a little bit shocking 
to read because you know Adorno doesn't hold back in having what what have been seen as quite elitist views about the masses but he's talking about sport and the importance of sport in education and how you know that's just this training this this introduction of of a very raw bodily based you know almost naturalized competitive instinct into the schoolroom although you know being greatly interested in theory and practice what he finds absolutely worse is the fan of sport who you know just just wants to watch other people sort of kicking a ball around or or running around he finds this a sort of very de-educative exercise of sort of tribal adherence and so on i must admit i was struck by that that view i thought to myself well I know, I know that's a theme of a lot of the Frankfurt School is that pa- the passive observer as opposed to the participant. And I don't really like that idea that we're increasingly passive in our, in our culture. And I thought, well, we, yes, what is worse? The sort of brutality of, of some sport or the, or the you know, which, which do you, are you most repelled by? The audience in a boxing match or the boxing? <laughs> if you don't mm. like boxing, I mean, you know, apologies out there to you if you enjoy the sport of boxing, but it's the kind of baying of the audience, or the, which is which is worse. And I, and that, that you know, we live in a time when everything can be recorded by individuals and recorded by much of that. If, if um, Adorno were around today, he'd no doubt be writing about that. The capacity for us to record and observe as though we were observers of the world, and then through TikTok or through, through social uh, communication, we can, uh, in a sense, be that audience the whole time. I mean, the, the amount of material that is simply someone falling over, an incident of, of note, you know, uh, someone going through, through an ice on a pond, uh, a car crashing into a car. You can watch hours of incidents of this kind, a sort of meaningless repetition of entertainment. Yeah. I'm not Con- sure where I was going with that thought, other than to say... Yeah, but that it that- is that... Constant passive kind of feed, isn't it? A feed is, you know, quite a nice metaphor, I suppose, of, you know, one, one's being given some papillum, but it, it, it doesn't really lead anywhere. It's all very fragmented. And I, I, you know, Adorno's most famous concept is probably the idea of the culture industry, that culture mm. is industrially organized and produced and sort of pumped out purely in order to gain views purely in order to gain advertising revenue or ticket revenue and and he would certainly see these streams of social media as highly unsocial in any meaningful sense and just something to which one is expected to react so that's that reactionary kind of sense of things as much as one might say one is also a producer for it but as these things go a kind of class resolving takes place there where you you get this kind of super class of so-called influencers who do it for money and you know they they get the attention and and then the, the broad masses of the kind of audience who's just doing the work of pushing it all around for them across social networks i think it'd be um fairly critical about that as a development or as a space with a capacity for some kind of self-education, space of, of meaningful enlightenment. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Introducing Eton X from Eton College, a diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel. 
Designed for self-study, these web-based courses empower your students with essential leadership, communication and academic skills for success at school and beyond. Our Study Skills course sharpens their learning abilities, while the AI Fundamentals course equips them with vital digital know-how in a fast-changing world. Other popular courses include verbal communication, critical thinking, writing skills, resilience, creative problem solving and many more. Offer the EtonX curriculum in your school for free. Visit EtonX.com to find out more. You are listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs, my guest this week, Professor Esther Leslie from Birkbeck College, and we're discussing the work of Theodore Adorno, Walter Benjamin, and whether their ideas can shed light on what schools are for. And before the break, we were just talking about the way the Frankfurt School, Theodore Adorno, and Walter Benjamin and others, were confronting this world of mass production of culture, mass production of imagery, mass production of ideas. And they were in a way the first to ask, what's the role of education in this? If we are surrounded by so much entertainment, so much, so much powerful imagery, how can we bring to students, bring to young people and bring to ourselves, bring to society, the kind of critical citizen that isn't the passive citizen we were talking about, the one that's simply... Uh, you know, is there to be entertained. Clearly, the, being entertained in modern society, uh, bread and circuses, isn't a problem. The problem, in a sense, is engagement and questioning and criticism. You know, Adorno has this sense that somehow we should be autonomous, rational, critical individuals, and we might become this on the capacity of being exposed to all sorts of impulses and maybe having mentors in some way who can open up the world as a very contradictory form and help us to understand our place within it and the tensions and the violences and where power lies. But that's a kind of a proposition that he doesn't necessarily explain, you know, how is that possible? But what interests me about Walter Benjamin, who's you know, slightly older, but part of the same milieu of these German, Jewish, left-wing intellectuals who fall victim, more or less, or in greater or lesser ways, to Nazism. What interests me about Benjamin is the way he really thinks about how you do bring about critical individuals. And part of this goes alongside with the thinking of his friend Bertolt Brecht, who's writing plays and works in such a way that they propose ideas or lay out scenarios without giving answers, but try to tease the audience all the time into thinking, what's going on? What would I do in this situation? Oh, I understand why Mother Courage acts in that way. It's because this is happening and therefore she makes this choice. So Benjamin's really interested in that approach of breaths of a kind of audience oriented theatrical production that leaves spaces for the audience but it also goes way back to his earlier writings about uh, children's literature and thinking about how children interact with books he was a great advocate of the idea that children should be able to scribble and doodle on books and make it their own and you know cut it up and sort of bring it into their world or children should play with detritus and sort of physically build their own miniature worlds within greater worlds worlds in which they could make decisions that part for Benjamin part of the problem always of the child and what leaves a scar and more even of youth and the adolescent is that they are not allowed to take control of their own worlds. They're just being inducted into the adult world and compelled to learn the rules and follow the traditions and take a space at a table that's already been laid out. So Benjamin, very early on, gets involved with this German youth movement that exists before the First World War and is very 
progressive and radical and very of its time. You know, they're sitting there, these bourgeois boys, grammar school in Berlin, so on, reading Dostoevsky and Ibsen and Nietzsche and fetishizing, in a sense, this idea of youth that must come sort of take over the mantle somehow. Youth which is still in touch with experience, which is still able to experience something, unlike the the ossified um, older people who rule all these systems and who take them to war, which is what happens in 1914. And And I think for Benjamin, for Adorno, for that whole generation, that war is a horrendous moment of recognizing the violence that is inherent within capitalist and imperialist society and who will be the victims of that and for whom and and for what which as you suggested earlier is questions we're asking again and i'm sure young people are also asking again today i saw in the news this proposition that i'm sure is just clickbait and wind up stuff but this idea that you know the british army is so small now that they may be you know having to recruit people you know and imagine being a young person suddenly confronted with that as a possibility that you might have to go off and fight a war in Yemen or Ukraine or something terrifying and probably one one of the more terrifying thoughts for me in that idea was that if there were a generalized call-up of young people into the army I suspect that lots would go because I don't because I doubt I mean it was that famous moment when I I went before the first world war and there was an Oxford Union debate and all the Oxford students vote that if there ever is a war again we certainly won't take part in it for all sorts of reasons and that won the debate and then a few months, a year or so later, there was a call up for the First World War and they joined en masse. That the, all the bonds of nationalism and patriotism and sort of imaginary communities that are so easily lead you in a certain direction are there today. I think there's a, a surprising rise in fears of us. I mean, with Donald Trump saying something like Americans are being polluted by people from abroad, you say, well, these are, these are the terms of fascism. It's just below the surface, and much of our comfortable world does push that aside. So I do feel, in a way, that we haven't moved on very far from the sorts of fears that Adorno and um, Walter Benjamin yeah. are concerned about. I think that's true, in, in in the sense that we see very concretely the the resurgence of of far right groups um, across the world. Europe, India, America, you know, this is, they have a certain kind of popular base. I suppose my feeling is just, you know, with children at school in central London, everything feels sort of so diverse and so, you know, these children, at least in my experience, are actually quite politicised, be it around, you know, questions of, of nationalism and the legitimacy of wars and racism and so on, or my daughter's school, you know, it was much more around questions of feminism, homophobia, you know, these sorts of issues. So there's quite a lot of political discourse that happens on the ground. And, And I think to a certain extent, sometimes the teachers are there trying to marshal it or rein in certain kinds of consciousness that might be developing on the basis of children's sort of home experience and parents and you know the stuff that coming in through social media as well you know there's a lot of politics going on there and and also coming from very dark places too as i know has been discussed around sort of andrew tate and so on that's been absolutely yes well issue that has come up a lot on Teachers Talk Radio, the Andrew, Andrew Tate phenomenon and that, and that uh, and the rise of populism and his kind of chauvinistic male presentation of the world. I, I, in a way, I, I wonder why aren't if, you describe a more optimistic view? I said that students would flock to join up to the recruiting offices, and, and yet there are, there are very large protests in London against the war, the Iraq War. There are protests in London lately calling for a ceasefire in, in, um, in Gaza and so on. So you can say, well, uh, students are 
they clearly don't like war. Well, you know, in a sense, they've never have liked war, young people. But when it sort of happens beneath that, the the sense of of they the, 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 the too easily put aside those re, re, you know, re, revulsion at war because we do live in a we live in a society where there is there are atomic weapons that supposedly guarantee our freedom and yet they're there the whole time. There's an awful lot of acceptance of war, acceptance of violence, that is the default position. And the marches and the demonstrations almost seem to validate that. You know, yeah, we are a caring community. We don't like war. <laughs> but in fact, we are rather easier with it than maybe we should be because it's so much more yeah. wallpaper. Because it, it's just a backdrop, isn't it? It's kind of permanent. And even... You know, those moments when it's suddenly shocking. You know, I remember the shock when the um, Russia-Ukraine war broke out or the shock around Gaza. But because these things go on and on, they, they, they sort of dull into consciousness and just become part of a new normality. Um, the very last piece of writing Walter Benjamin wrote is called on, on the Concept of History, and he's trying to understand how has fascism come about in Germany and what what kind of concept of progress and historical time must there exist in order to make this horrendous state of affairs come about. And he makes what for me are very significant sort of points within that about the ways in which there's always an illusion that we are moving progressively forward. So he has a particular interest in how the German working class were uh, failed to oppose it sufficiently. And there are all sorts of internal historical arguments about battles between communists and social democrats. But his argument is that there's a sense in which they were persuaded that they were just flowing with the times, you know, that, and it comes back to this question of passivity, that one can't really stop these things. This is just how it is, what exists. And and he, he coins it quite nicely somewhere else where he talks about, you know, the the catastrophe, you know, is, is not the thing that's always going to come, always about to emerge. We we're sort of living within it, but you, you live within the catastrophe so much that you stop to see it as a catastrophe. It, it's just normality in a way. And I suppose, given you know, since since the uh, the announcement of a new world order and and the whole sort of post eighty nine period, we we've had permanent wars and skirmishes, and it it just becomes a normality and. This idea of whether young people would, you know, flock to it. Are, are they being shaped in the classroom in the way Benjamin talked about his kind of 1900 generation in Berlin being shaped to carry out the wars to come? You know, is that, is that what's happening? Is something like, you know, being, you know, put into streams? Is that like, like being put into regiments to come? Are you being taught through British values something that would make you more nationalist, such that you would be prepared to go and defend that somewhere? Or does that all seem worlds away? And in fact, if young people did flock to sign up, it would be more as a result of the kind of adverts I'd seen at the cinema recently, where being in the British Army is just a big laugh, lads, isn't it? You know, it's a community, it's a group, it's an adventure. and you get some skills and it it's all great. So this would be something to do because all the other things to do seem pretty pointless. If you're going to get a job, you're hardly going to get any wages, yes. you're not going to get a house and all the other arguments that are happening about young people and their alienation and disaffected stance towards the future. So at, at least going to war would be you know, something to do, something different. Yes, that paints well. Rather than the picture of the German cadets lining up outside the school and then going into the playing field to be brutalised at some sort of horrible game of something or other, what you have today is a, well, again, I don't always hesitate to be the old guy saying young people today, but 
probably all of us really, a sense in which the future doesn't exist anymore. And I know people like Mark Fisher have talked about this, how the, the future's been stolen from this generation, or from, stolen from all of us. There's no sense in which we are progressing towards, you know, the, the, whatever it is, of the, of the utopian right or, or whatever, or of arrived at the end of history. If this is the end of history, then it's not very nice. And so there's a sense in which we live in just a kind of rather confusing present in which sensation, yes, go to war, join the army, because that'd be better than, well, it would be maybe quite fun. Who knows? <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's not a nice thought. Yeah, and and I suppose, I'm because you think of the phrase like, make America great again, or, you know, the, the sort of anti-immigration basis on which, you know, Maloney in Italy and Wilders in Netherlands and the AFD who are up and coming in Germany stand it, it's it's not a, a model of of progression moving forwards into this bright new dawn it, it's very much about a looking backwards make us great again when was this moment when we were previously great what is trump's utopia it's something like the 1950s or some you know unspecified utopia realm that's a, a sort of br brutal and exclusive utopia but but vague enough to for anyone to project their sense of what it would mean to be great again and and so yeah it's a very desperate and non-visionary moment or a, a sort of back backward looking but and, and literally so with with trump because here we are in in some moment of complete unimaginability confronted with the same again the unprecedented that is already precedented of this idiot yes <laughs> malevolent person becoming leader of the so-called free world yeah or so much of the rhetoric of brexit was uh, getting control again returning to some position we had in the past before it was all polluted by belonging to the european union and a vision of a britain prior to that that we could somehow get back to yeah. And, and I suppose, because I keep thinking, you know, when I think about critical pedagogies and educational philosophy, and I remember being really struck at, at university in one course, it's actually a course on se transgressive sexualities, but uh, for some reason the tutor asked us to read Paul Willis's Learning to Labour, I guess because we were thinking about traditional masculinities, and, you know, that book's a sort of, a 1970s incipient cultural studies moment of thinking about what happens to young working class boys in the classroom who are effectively being trained for a job in the factory, just like their dad did before them. This is the purpose of school, you know, enough to give them enough dexterity and communicative ability in order to take up their place in the factory. I keep thinking, well, where, where, what would be the equivalent? And I'm sure it's happening. And I'm sure there are many people writing those kind of ethnographic studies. But of course, the big shift is that the factory doesn't exist. And what is the destination then for yeah, the, the working class boys, you know, not wanting to or thinking of going to university or, or going into a profession are, are you know is there that generational replication possible in any way or in, and how now I throw the, the question back at you but how is the classroom set up and what is it communicating to that body of students for whom it is assumed high level education uh, is not appropriate that it you know is it already foreclosed from them but if it is foreclosed is there some other destination or or purpose in mind
This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Introducing Eton X from Eton College, a diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel. Designed for self-study, these web-based courses empower your students with essential leadership, communication and academic skills for success at school and beyond. Our study skills course sharpens their learning abilities, while the AI Fundamentals course equips them with vital digital know-how in a fast-changing world. Other popular courses include verbal communication, critical thinking, writing skills, resilience, creative problem solving, and many more. Offer the Eaton X curriculum in your school for free. Visit eatonx.com to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The Guardian features an analysis of the impact COVID and austerity had on children in England. The article focuses on four key areas and contains some deeply concerning data. In terms of child poverty, 4.2 million children are in relative poverty and young people experiencing destitution has tripled over the past three years. According to researchers, this means children facing such hardships may go without proper clothes or share a bed with a sibling, but it also means missing out on family outings and school trips. These children are also more likely to be affected by cuts to local amenities, including libraries, parks and youth clubs, further reducing life opportunities. Schools in early years have struggled since the pandemic. Issues with children not meeting developmental milestones in EYFS and poor attendance and deteriorating behaviours are affecting primary and secondary age pupils. This, alongside crumbling school buildings, recruitment and retention difficulties, and soaring demand for SEND services, continues to impact pupils, particularly the disadvantaged. Health is also having a huge impact on outcomes. Declining services means problems are storing up for the future, particularly in the field of mental health. Record numbers of young people are being referred, 1.4 million in 2022 in England alone. In primary, two in five children in England leave primary school overweight, putting them at risk of diabetes, heart disease and other issues for later in life. Child protection concerns are also on the increase. In 2023, 83,840 children were looked after, a steady increase year on year from 64,460 in 2010. Teenagers are now the fastest growing group of looked after children, with limited services in place to support. In response to the bleak statistics, many have called for a national plan for childhood to transform the life chances of many described as the left behind. This term was used by the Association of Directors of Children's Services and the organisation said it was the narrow view of government to focus on a recovery plan just for education when they should have looked at a recovery plan for childhood, as this would have addressed wider well-being issues. The organisation also called for a department for children to coordinate policy across government areas, not just education. A government spokesperson responded to the issues raised by highlighting recent changes to childcare and an increase in educational standards. In Scotland, teachers have been speaking to BBC News about what they describe as rising pupil violence. In Aberdeen, staff say some fear for their safety and are scared to go to work. The council is being called upon by unions to intervene, but it says it's already trying to support staff and address the underlying causes of poor behaviour. The EIS union surveyed 800 members in Aberdeen and almost half reported violent pupil behaviour in school every day and more than a third said they had been physically assaulted. The problem is reported in both secondary and primary schools. 
the council said any misbehaviour was unacceptable and that it was considering all feedback from staff saying, everyone who visits and uses a school is entitled to a safe, peaceful, respectful environment. In another story from the BBC, this time from Bristol, the focus is on school children being failed as permanent exclusion rates rose. More than twice as many children in the city were permanently excluded last year compared to the past two years. There are now plans to offer early intervention in primary schools so serious issues can be resolved sooner, but some point to wider concerns which also need to be addressed if things are to change. Many media outlets have also reported on the new guidance on the use of mobile phones issued to schools in England. The guidance received mixed reviews, with some welcoming the clarity, whilst others described it as a non-policy for a non-issue. Many schools already have policies in place to deal with this. Education Secretary Gillian Keegan told BBC Breakfast the guidance aimed to offer consistency and that there is no place for mobile phones in our schools all the way through the school day. The government announcement comes shortly after Esther Jai, mother of murdered Brianna Jai, called for changes to the law to stop children accessing social media. There are currently no complete bans on mobile phones in schools in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, where education decisions are devolved from the UK. Finally, the writer of BBC Three's comedy drama Borders gave an interview on education and opportunity in code switching. The show about five black teens with scholarships to an elite boarding school focuses on issues such as our access to opportunity and the reality of feeling out of place at times. Daniel Lawrence Taylor used some of his own experiences at university to write as well as speaking to friends who attended private schools. He says code switching, changing accent, tone of voice and mannerisms depending on where or who a person may be with, was an important thing to highlight as many black people feel they have to code switch when entering majority white spaces. Taylor also says he wanted to show that whilst there may be benefits to attending academic institutions like the one in the show, there are challenges too, including making sure the environment is safe enough for those from different backgrounds to really take advantage and use the opportunity to its fullest. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. You are listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week, Professor Esther Leslie from Birkbeck College. And we're discussing the work of Theodore Adorno, Walter Benjamin, and whether their ideas can shed light on what schools are for. I think, unfortunately, that it does, on the one hand, a, a group, maybe 20-30% of students, are, are presented with a foreclosed sort of world. They said, look, this is, you, you failed our system, which is competitive, it's exam-driven, and there's a series of assessments on the way, and you, you, you have been found wanting. And therefore, what you will do is somehow fit in as best you can. And I don't think they offered a very pleasant future. And I think, and yet, in the overall environment of the school, will be full of optimistic phrases of, of onwards and upwards and personal success. And individuals are you are the centre of your own world. You can take command of things. You must have a creative personality, an open mindset. Or I forget what the phrases are now. That dominate schools. So it's a it's a sort of gaslighting. I think I'm being very negative about teaching. Yeah, I had a lovely career, <laughs> but the, the a sort of gaslighting of students into you are responsible personally for your own failure. Some of you will fail and the rest of you will succeed, but in a way that you'll find impossible later on. And I think another problem with schools is that we teachers uh, profess creativity, personal creativity, personal critical thinking, but that isn't what they experience in the world. It's very much you've got these grades, you will go in this direction. So they, it is a, a form of kind of starting illusion that students find themselves in. So I don't think schools are particularly nice places. But yes, they're not saying you, you, I was at school, just probably that last sorts of generations in the 1970s, when almost all my friends who didn't go in the sixth form went into the local factory, of which there were two or three and they were big apprentices. That world is gone. But uh, there's still a sense in which you will now go out and be 
in the marketplace, except you're now not going to join the factory, you're going to sell yourself, you become the product. And I think that's something, going back to Adorno and Benjamin, they're very aware of the sense in which the self becomes a commodity. And then they might have lived in a world where that self might be making or selling commodities and uh, obviously that still happens but in sort of different ways and in different environments but the key point is that that you yourself become the person who has to sell yourself on the market and where you know Marx wrote about that back in the 1850s 1860s that sort of sense that you sell your labor power in competition with all the other workers and if you're lucky then you become a wage slave in some way i think what adorno pulls out and it particularly comes from his 1940s experience in america is how enthusiastically people are encouraged to grab on to their own self marketing and cultivation of image which sort of begins to happen through radio personalities and film stars but everyone then gets a kind of training in what it means to advertise yourself and to be a brand and to make an impression and win friends and influence people by buying some bestseller book that and it's all your own fault and for Adorno that that sense of your own self presentation is then matched by its absolute negation which is a modern concept of fate so if it does all go wrong read your horoscope in the LA Times it told you this week was a bad week to apply for a job or try and fall in love or something and this sort of modern idea of both being absolutely down to you as an individual no social circumstances involved no networks of solidarity or competition or anything it's just you but if it all goes wrong, it was in the stars. And you know, we, we read the horoscope and we're at actually operating within pretty mythical kind of terms. And so I was quite interested to hear from the young people in my environment that horoscopes and manifestation and all sorts of mythical ideas of fate and, and so on are actually quite popular again. And promulgated sort of through these new technologies that's as well. True. I, was, I was surprised by the number of students who and my own children who were interested in horoscopes and I could never quite pin down whether they really believed or whether it was a kind of game in which and there was an irony with it. Oh, I don't believe this stuff but then again what star sign are you? And that was taken quite seriously. So there was some level in which you'd engage with it in as you say a mystical sense of fate being out there. I, I, pick up very much what you said there about the idea of the apparent empowering nature of much of our culture right now. So you can capture moments, you can preserve yourself on the internet, you can make creatively all sorts of things. But on the other hand, you don't have a sense in which you are really in control of anything. The future is sort of happening in, in powers beyond your understanding in places you'll never, you know, you, you can't, you can't understand the, the economics of it. And you can't understand the Mechanic. Who who can explain the internet? Ask any man or any person on the street. What exactly is the internet, and where all that's you know so on? It's you're going to have a very uh, confused idea about things that are present in your life right now. Yeah, I think that's so true that you know the opaqueness of these massive things that we're tied up in, that we're reliant on. But I think many people would struggle to really explain how any of it happens. I mean, I remember that too as a child, sort of being fascinated by TV and, you know, you go through that stage where someone tries to convince you as little people in their acting and then you realise that's not true, but do you ever really quite understand? But now, you know, we live within an immense kind of version of that where everything in our lives is passing through these networks that we're this is how ideology works. You talk about the cloud, so you imagine it's all up there. You might go looking for it up there. And there are satellites and so on. But it's also down there. It's cables. It's deeply embedded. I mean, that was one reason why I wrote um, a book about liquid crystals, because I suddenly realized, you know, what was I 
touching day after day. What was I engaging with day after day? Are these devices that are reliant on on the liquid crystal as a form, but I had no idea what a liquid crystal was or how this was working within my device. So, you know, now I, I, I have also been thinking more about clouds and fog computing, the kind of metaphors um, that we use and what those encourage us to think or not think about these devices that we're daily engaged with. But I mean, for me as an older person, you know, I, I remember their emergence into the world and what it was like before. And there's a certain sense in which one can conceptualize something outside the device. But for younger people, it's a natural part of their environment, as sort of natural as trees. And, you know, so, you know, it is part of the educative mission, perhaps, to try to alienate these objects or defamiliarize them in a Brechtian sense and to think about how they work and, and particularly questions of ownership and questions of data and intellectual property and all the things that are coming upon us around AI and chat GPT text and you know how that fits into this world I mean we've already had I think quite a bruising experience in the university sector in that immediately suddenly sanctions were put in place and everything students submitted was run through an AI machine and there could be severe consequences from that. The student union pushed back and said, well, some people are using Grammarly. Some people might be using ChatGPT, but then refining it. You know, what? we can't just suddenly criminalise this, you know. So it's now been rolled back and presumably... The sort of reflections on how we do work with this and of course that that must be prevalent in schools as well obviously Absolutely, you yeah. you have less I, written assessed material than us but well, on a side it's in a, in a way this a side issue is it's certainly that has come up in in schools ai and the writing of essays you put to chat gpt and certainly we're only in the threshold of that really just in, a, in a very short period of time ai computer app of some kind will be able to write a perfectly good essay that's original to that moment but it raises so many philosophical questions about what we even mean by originality and you know where things come from and anyway maybe some people were always paying other people to write their essays and we couldn't know i just think it opens up a whole bundle of things i mean this makes me think of walter benjamin thinking about the integration of photography and mechanical reproduction into our lives you know in he, in he, that way and maybe something in the, the art and the age of mechanical reproduction or, yeah that's right it's probably I mean, that seems highly relevant today that exactly i i, I think it, it's a text that doesn't go away you know and and every time i read it it, it sort of comes alive again in a in a really interesting way in terms of how it speaks to to automation, questions of authenticity, questions of accessibility. I mean, the big argument between Adorno and Benjamin that went around the questions raised by that essay, because Adorno sees, you know, the coming of technology into culture as highly problematic. He says the same thing as I think it's Aldous Huxley says, you know, that there'll just be more, and if you've got more, then it will just be worse quality you know there'll be no gatekeeping and so on whereas Benjamin says no we have an an immense opportunity here to democratize access to culture so existing culture can be reproduced and more and more people can see it in reproduced form and get a sense of what's been made in the world and there are things that are that are born technological so there is no original of the photograph there is no original of the film print and so Everyone who has access to that has an equal access and there's no hierarchy there and everyone becomes sort of empowered as as a cultural consumer and, and then the next stage being, you know, cultural actor. So going back to Brecht, you know, Brecht was so excited by radio, so was Benjamin. I think Benjamin's best pedagogical offerings are, are his radio lectures for the youth hour and he and Brecht were talking about you know what what radio 
meant and no one thinks it means is to have a panoply of, of voices and you know, they used radio in a very interactive way so people could write in or play along as as radio was happening but Brecht also said the technological capacity of the radio is that it can be a what you call it, a broadcaster as well as a receiver but this broadcast capacity has been truncated because of the interests of industry or the military or the state. And, and we should come back to that broadcastability. Well, we kind of have it now with web 2.0 and 3.0 or wherever we are. Everyone can be a producer, a cultural participant. But then you raise other questions about, you know, whether you can be found in, in the mass of stuff or whether someone else is drawing profits over your contributions. And and that does bring us back to AI and scraping contents and, you know, puking it up again in, in certain ways. And I saw, you know, somebody recently came across something that looked very much like their own work on a particular topic, but in fact, an AI-generated book which can't be called plagiarized because the words are different, mm. but all of the kind of intellectual body of it had come from the original book, sort of rewritten by the machine and then <laughs> sold at the same price as the original. And that, you know, opens up really interesting and strange questions. Well, it's coming to the end, <laughs> believe it or not. And if we, I mean, one of the things that struck me, two observations of something you said there. One is that, the defamiliarization idea that schools should be in a state to say, look at the world you're in, and it seems so normal and natural and common sense. And as soon as you see common sense around, you should be alerted that maybe it doesn't have to be that way. So schools should, in a sense, be defamiliarizing. And if you could design a, a I'm thinking, oh, I'll go on another tangent now. Another earlier you were talking, and I thought, well, the kind of education that Walter Benjamin might have appreciated would be the kind of childhood the Brontes had you know there wasn't much structure they played a lot in the on the moors they wrote stories of their own they got into fantasy worlds they told stories of each other of the of their imaginary kingdoms and so on and I'm thinking how how would you introduce into schools the kind of creativity and play and questioning of the familiar if you could that's too many mm. questions so I'll throw that to you yeah so interesting one isn't it i think i also think you know benjamin had a kind of practical experience you know against his strict berlin-based wilhelmine militaristic education he was sent for a couple of years to a progressive school in the countryside where you know sounds a little bit like the only reference i have in my head and something i know little about kind of summerhill isn't it yeah and that a sort of free school in the countryside where you kind of determine your own curriculum and you know you spend lots of time sort of self-managing and self-organizing. I suppose if I imagined a school in the city that tried to bring out the self-capacities of students to understand the world and their place within it, I think a high component for me would be engaging with contemporary technologies of production partly or you know just so making creating not just always being subjected to this this is what great poet has done of course you could never do this so we have to understand the kind of magic embedded in this thing i suppose i'd want to activate much more and using the amazing of techniques that exist, students' own sort of creative capacities to rework the language around them or use sort of montage and collage principles to rework uh, elements that are familiar in their world and find sort of connections between them and sort of mapping and deriving as sort of situationist techniques of sort of bringing in environments into being through teaching. I mean, this is something I would take from Marx, where he talks about the alienated person who 
has had everything socially stunted. They can't enjoy food because they're so hungry. They have to wolf it and they have no time to spend time looking at objects of beauty and so on. So it's about reinvigoration of the senses. And I suppose really engaging with the environment, both inside and outside school, by trying to learn to see again, to hear again, to taste again, to feel again. But I mean, you know, these are, you know, in a sense, it's kind of obvious things, isn't it? But I think in that, in those efforts, which in a way are returning to the self as fully embodied and socially uh, connected within the world and use a fashionable phrase sort of entangled with all sorts of stuff in what sounds like bringing oneself back to nature actually it's a de-familiarization of what has become overly familiar but how you turn that into a curriculum another matter in a way let someone else sort that out (laughs) i think the aspiration is fine and because i think there's been a loss of aspiration in education and the aspiration to to do those sorts of things and instead it's about that measurement of exam results measurement of outcomes uh, much of that driven by technology because you can measure those things so you do and so schools become even more i mean i hate to think this thought the, de- the decline in studying of a-level english literature when i was school from being one of the biggest a-levels when i first went into teaching to declining and declining and declining Partly because, there might be many reasons for this, but partly of the reason was that GCSE teaching of English became so instrumental that, that, that you learn these points for the exam, this makes a good poem, this is how you understand poetry, that the overall message was literature isn't magical at all. Yeah, so. and I've, I found that amazing because, it, you know, at a time when I was at school, countless people would say it was my English teacher who turned me on to the world, to politics, to all sorts of things, because it was through reading books that something opened up. And I've seen with my own children how it it really doesn't seem like that anymore, at least not within the state sector, as I've experienced it. Things were, yeah, very... uh, an instrumentalism and instrumentalisation of reason. That's all at the heart of the critique of Adorno and Horkheimer, you know, that, so how do we get to reason, to being reasoning, rational, you know, c- critical individuals in the world without that reason just being instrumentalized and funneled into one end, one answer, one way of, of thinking and, and doing things in order to pass this exam. And sitting here in what was significantly an English department, at Beck, you know, we feel all too sorely how disastrous for us and, and for the humanities more broadly that change within schools has been. It's not getting any students anymore. And this will lead to and already has led to closure of departments. And then that becomes no longer a possibility for lots of people who you know, in contrast, my, my daughter now, you know, is at university and decided to try English literature again. And and it is that thing that it was at school, you know, think for yourself. And, you know, so, yeah, that enjoying that, that revelatory capacity of it should still be that should be available to 12, 13, 14, 15 year olds. Yes. And my memory of English literature was it was highly empowering. Because for the first time in your life, you were asked in an A-level English literature lesson, what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think of yeah. this? What's your what reaction you to think? that? And you thought, well, yeah. I, I what am. you think is important and valid, you know. Yes. And, and yeah, you rarely get that. And for many people, they'll never, maybe never really get that. Well, thank you so much. I'll end with one thought, that's just because I can't resist it. And that's why I, I threw one question at you, which is really unfair. You know, design the entire education system, if you don't mind. But if you ask students what kind of schools they would most like to go to, they almost always describe Hogwarts or something <laughs> like it. You know, because it's got all the features you might want. It's, got, it's away from the world. You discover powers you didn't know you had. And you're with your friends. And you're learning things that other people can't understand. That's empowering. It's magical. <laughs> Hogwarts. Yeah, that's probably the thing. <laughs>
much as I have been plagued by J.K. Rowling through, through my children, I can see the, the attractiveness of the potions cast and so on. Well, Esther Leslie, thank you so much for joining me. I've enjoyed this discussion very much. And thank you for sharing your thoughts and your time with me and Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you. Thanks so much. And that brings to an end this episode of the Friday Morning Break. Please listen again in two weeks' time as I, with another guest, will explore what schools are for. This week, my guest was Professor Esther Leslie from Birkbeck College. So whether you are finishing your break, marking it on a Friday morning, finishing off the hobnobs before you get back to a lesson, or listening, as you can do, on Spotify and multiple other platforms, including the Teachers Talk Radio site. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.